So I have a confession to make. As I meditated on our gospel reading in preparation for this sermon, I had a certain song stuck in my head all week. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably know it too. And now you can thank me for getting it stuck in your head. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, let me remind you. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I'll spare you the rest. But suffice it to say, um, this is a very popular song that has stuck with me since childhood, and it just tells the story from Luke chapter 19 about a man who was too short to see Jesus. He was a wee little man. So he climbed a tree to see him, and Jesus went and found him. I realized this week that that song might be the, the extent of any teaching I've ever had on Zacchaeus. And actually, I think it's not a bad teaching. The magic for me as a child when I sang about Zacchaeus was this sense that Jesus sees the little people, people like me. Being small does not mean that you are unimportant to God. That's a good reminder for us grown-ups. But of course, there is more to the story than that. It's a story about a man who, for a variety of reasons, felt invisible to God and who was found by him anyway. It's about the ways we tend to categorize people and how often we get it wrong. This is a story about who God sees and how, and how we are called to respond. So as we reflect on Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, I invite you to enter into it by asking yourself, in what ways have you felt disqualified or perhaps at a disadvantage in the life of faith? How have others made you feel small inside or outside the church? And maybe, perhaps in response to these things, how have you tended to sort people into categories of lesser and greater significance? Have you ranked others in terms of their relevance, their worthiness, or even their ability to be used by God? These questions are in the background and foreground of Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. So let's begin with the background. This story comes right after a string of teachings about what actually qualifies a person for the kingdom of God. The Jews of Jesus' day had their own set of assumptions about this, about who was considered favored or blessed by God, just like we do. They generally equated blessing with worldly status, just like we do. I remember doing a wanted us to warm up for this class by repeating this mantra to ourselves, I am healthy and wealthy and wise. And I thought, well, that's a little on the nose, but it's a good reflection of what we value, of how we describe the good life. And of course, those things can be blessings, but they don't tell us where someone actually stands with God. So for almost the entire chapter before we meet Zacchaeus, almost all of Luke chapter 18, Jesus debunks this notion that a person's external status reflects their internal status. First, he tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which we heard last week. The Pharisee was very impressed with himself before God, but the tax collector humbled himself and went away justified. Then after that, Jesus rebukes the disciples for trying to keep children out of his way. 
Now, children weren't treated quite as badly as tax collectors in Jesus' day, but they certainly were not celebrated or adored. They were just unimportant, you know, expected to be seen and not heard. But Jesus invites the children to come, and then he holds them up as an example to emulate. He says, the kingdom belongs to such as these. Whoever does not enter the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is flipping the cultural script about what God values and who God blesses. It continues in his conversation with the rich young ruler, someone who seems to have everything going for him, right? He's got money, he's got position and influence, and he says, I've kept all the commandments since my youth. If ever there was a shoe in for the kingdom, here it is. But in the end, the rich young ruler goes away sad because his wealth is actually preventing him from obtaining treasure in heaven. Verse 24 says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Luke wants us to understand that the kingdom of God is upside down from what we've known. Tax collectors can be justified. Children are our spiritual models. Wealth is not necessarily our friend. These things are not intuitive to us, which is why Jesus has to repeat them in so many different ways. And he does this in word, but also in deed, because at the end of chapter 18, he's about to enter Jericho, which is a very important and very affluent city. And right there in the sight of the prominent and the wealthy, Jesus stops to heal a blind beggar that the crowd had tried to silence. The people following Jesus, even his own disciples, still don't understand why he has come. They want to protect Jesus from the children and the beggars and the sinners. But Jesus has other plans. He has other priorities that he invites us to share if we can learn to see things the way he does. So all of that sets the stage for Zacchaeus. And if we're taking Luke's cues about who tends to find favor with God, we might not know what to make of this new character. Zacchaeus, we learn, is a tax collector, which is a sort of religious outcast, but who was just presented in chapter 18 as the right kind of person to repent and ask forgiveness. But Zacchaeus is also rich and a leader, someone with privilege like the rich young ruler who rejected Jesus' invitation to follow him. So when we meet Zacchaeus, we aren't sure how to sort him. Is he gonna be a good guy or a bad guy in this story? Here's how one biblical scholar put it. Following a close reading of chapters one through 18, Luke's audience might assume that the wealthy and those who rule are out, sinners and tax collectors are in. What then are we to make of someone who's all of these things? Luke dismisses the usual stereotypical categories by which one's status before God is predetermined. In his characterization of Zacchaeus, Luke pulls the rug from under every cliche, every formula by which people's status before God might be calculated. Now, why is that important? It's important because it reminds us that God doesn't have a type. There is no shoo-in for the kingdom or for the life of faith, or even for a call to ministry. We don't get to look at people on paper and presume that we know their story or their status or even their future. 
we don't. In fact, we don't even get to look at ourselves and presume those things. Friends, resist the temptation to sort other people and resist the temptation to sort yourself. Your track record may not be what you want it to be. Your current tendencies and habits may not be what you want them to be. Your life story may not sound the way you think it should when you hold it up to your aspirations for the Christian life. I'm sure Zacchaeus felt the same way. In fact, when I read this story as an adult, I think Zacchaeus' real obstacle in getting close to Jesus had little to do with his height. Yes, the crowds blocked his view, but I think there was a deep ambivalence at work in him. I think he had typed himself as someone who didn't really have the right to belong to the Messiah or his movement. He was drawn to Jesus and he was determined to see him, but he settled on looking down at him from a distance. Maybe he thought that's all he deserved. Or maybe he thought that's all he wanted. Perhaps he knew that closer proximity to Jesus would require more from him than he was ready to give. And so he accepted the view from a tree. We have our own versions of this, don't we? We want closeness with God. We're drawn to him, but we're also ambivalent. We have mixed feelings. We doubt our worthiness, or we determine that our story up to this point is somehow binding. Subconsciously, we may feel disqualified or at least discouraged from trying. So we settle for a half knowledge of God, a distant connection that we think protects us from further shame or rejection. What keeps you from really drawing near to God? What are your obstacles, your excuses? What voices in your head tell you that this is as good as it's gonna get? To borrow some imagery from Zacchaeus, what's keeping you up in the tree? In my own life, there have been times when I've negotiated with God because I wanted him, but I also wanted to keep my sins. I wanted to hold on to the habits and the little pet behaviors that I thought gave me so much comfort and control. So I've done this in my spiritual life. Come closer, God, but don't come too close. St. Augustine famously prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Our commitment to sin makes us ambivalent toward Christ. But sin is not the only thing that keeps us at a distance. Sometimes it's shame that keeps us there. This is when we repent and come clean before God, but we remain convinced of our inability to really fit in with him or his people. We assume, or maybe other people even tell us in one way or another, that we're second-class citizens in the church. You know, they'll let us in the door, of course, but we'll never really belong. Maybe you have felt that you aren't spotless enough, or intellectual enough, or extroverted enough, fill in the blank. For whatever reason, you've thought you just aren't the type to really be used by God. So you negotiate in a different way. More like the prodigal son who returns home and says, I'm not worthy to be your son, so just let me live as one of your servants. 
We don't really know what was going on inside of Zacchaeus as he watched Jesus from a tree. But here's what we do know. Whether or not Zacchaeus was willing to settle for his proximity to the Messiah, Jesus was not willing. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus wants more for you than a distant view of him. He does not want you to merely see him. He wants you to be seen by him. He wants to know you. This is the gospel. God calls you by name and invites himself over to where you live. Now it's worth saying that this might not feel very comfortable and you know what? That's okay. Nobody ever said it would be comfortable. But it is better, I promise. It is better to be seen and known and close to God no matter what it costs you. Zacchaeus is proof of that. When Jesus called his name and told him to come down, it says in verse six, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody said that Zacchaeus was converted between the limb and the ground. And upon his conversion, his great wealth was nothing compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. Verse 8 says that Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. It's interesting to think about Zacchaeus' transformation in light of Jesus' own words at the end of the previous chapter. After the rich young ruler went away sad, Jesus said this, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it responded, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Friends, whatever obstacles you face in the journey of faith, whatever impossibilities you feel that your story or your life has left you with, you need to hear these words. What is impossible with man is possible with God. There is no sin or trauma or disadvantage or darkness or any other experience that can keep the love of God from reaching you, from transforming you, from healing you completely. This doesn't mean that it will happen instantly. Zacchaeus had a pretty dramatic conversion experience. You know, a lot did change when he met Jesus. But church tradition tells us that Zacchaeus went on to become a bishop, which means he probably had a long, slow journey of maturation between his first encounter with Jesus and the time that he was appointed to lead God's people. So the invitation then is to respond to God's voice every time he calls your name. It's to become aware of the ways that you remain ambivalent toward him, the ways you try to negotiate or settle for a safer distance from him, and to come down joyfully when he calls you on it. The invitation is to repent and believe the gospel again and again and again until he comes. So on that note, I'll turn briefly to our Thessalonians reading because it speaks to this. It speaks to the return of Christ, which 
the Thessalonian church was beginning to doubt. They were suffering under persecution, but they were also grieving the loss of people who had died. And so they were, they were beginning to wonder, is God really going to make good on his promises? Did he defeat death or didn't he? Is he going to stop evildoers or not? Or did he already come and we missed it somehow? So Paul writes this letter to assure them, God's judgment is just. He will not abandon you and he will not let evil go unchecked in the world. And he says, this is true even for those of you who've died. In his first letter to them, he writes, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, when total transformation or total vindication seems lost, when we continue to struggle in the life of faith, and even when we die before seeing our hopes fulfilled, even then we can be confident that God isn't finished with us. He has come to seek and save the lost, and he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him in faith. We may not see it immediately or even in our lifetimes, but the promise is that he will do it. Elsewhere, Paul put it like this, and this is a verse that I have clung to when I have felt overcome by my own sin, burdened by the the seeming impossibility that I will ever truly learn to live the way God calls me to. It's Philippians 1, verse 6, and it says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. At the day of Jesus Christ. This is a long journey, and it won't be over until he comes. So wherever you are in that journey now, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, or whether you are just starting out, just learning how to respond to his voice, don't sort yourself. Don't assume you're done learning, because you're not. And don't assume that you'll always be dragging behind at a distance. Resist any label that leads either to complacency or to condemnation. Instead, repent and believe the gospel. In the end, this is the only qualification that will matter, the only way we will be sorted. Did you respond to God's voice so far as you could hear it? Paul makes it clear in verse 7 of the Thessalonians reading that this is how we will be judged when Jesus returns, with his mighty angels in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are hard, hard words, but they belong to the same story in which Jesus himself, the righteous judge, comes to find and befriend a person who does not know him, a person that everyone around him called a sinner, unworthy of God's kindness. When you hold 2 Thessalonians up next to Luke 19, it reveals one of the great tensions of our faith. God will judge sin, and God has come to save sinners. 
It's a tension that we shouldn't try to resolve, as tempting as it might be to do that. And the church has tried to do that in a variety of ways. You know, we've sought to flatten out the tension of God's justice and his mercy, either by eliminating the notion of final judgment altogether, because that's uncomfortable, or, on the other hand, by overconfidently delineating exactly what is going to happen to whom, as if we ourselves have the power to judge. But instead of trying to stand above the tension and explain it, we are called to live inside of it and embrace it. We are called to embrace the paradox of our faith in a God who is for us both the judge and the judged. Our God is the one who invites us to come down out of the tree and then who climbs up there in our place to take the judgment and the isolation and the shame that we can never resolve on our own. Our God is the one who holds the tension of judgment and mercy within himself, in his very body, on the cross. G.K. Chesterton put it like this, as we have taken the circle as a symbol of reason and madness, we may very well take the cross as a symbol at once of mystery and health. For the circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but it is fixed forever in its size. It can never be larger or smaller. But the cross, though it has at its head a collision and a contradiction, can extend its forearms forever without altering its shape. Because it has a paradox in its center, it can grow without changing. The circle returns upon itself and is bound. The cross opens its arms to the four winds. It is a signpost for free travelers. The cross opens its arms to the four winds, to you and to me. In its shadow, we all stand on equal footing. None of us deserves it, but all of us can receive it. All of us can become, like Zacchaeus, the unlikely stewards of this mystery. We can become those who host the presence of God in our homes, in our lives, and in the world. So don't typecast yourself or anyone else. Instead, repent and believe the good news. God sees you. He calls you by name and he will complete the good work that he started in you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for coming near to us, for coming even closer than we would dare to ask or imagine. Thank you for knowing us and for allowing us to know you. I pray that you would give us courage to respond to your voice, to say yes to your invitation. And I pray with the Apostle Paul, that you would make us worthy of this calling and that you may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.